Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. What you're about to hear is part one of a presentation I gave at the Monastic Institute 2007 conference held at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. The topic of the conference was Welcoming the Other, A Path to Holiness and Peace. I was invited to give a presentation on what it means to be a Buddhist. So what you're about to hear is part one of my presentation at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. I'm going to record my uh, talk, uh, uh, just in case I say something profound. (laughs) I'll have it for posterity. As as I was thinking about what I was going to talk about today, um, with the topic of uh, being a Buddhist, I thought maybe my journey would be of some interest as to what it means to be an American Buddhist, a Buddhist living in America, who converted, and, and why did he convert, and what has he found after his conversion. Uh, so I was born a Lutheran, uh, not because I wanted to be, but because my parents were. And, and for the first part of my life, being a Lutheran was okay, but I was a member of the 60s. I'm 58 years old now and went to high school in the 60s. And if any of you can remember, it was important to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. Uh, so I became an agnostic. I, I, I figured that would be the best way to live my life. Uh, and, and then I turned 30. <laughs> and... and and I realized that people who turned 30 would be dead soon. Um, so I, I thought it best to find a religion so I could die well. And, and I bought a book by Houston Smith called World Religions. And it's used in some of the high schools even today. And I read that chapter on Buddhism twice. And, and being sort of um, a non-religious person at that time... Buddhism made sense. Buddhism seemed to me to address the human condition. What does it mean to be a human being? Why are we born? Why do we have to get old? Why do we have to get sick? And most importantly, why do we have to die? And Buddhism talked a lot about that, right off the bat. And then I realized after reading Buddhism, books on Buddhism, that I, too, could become a Buddha. And, and I thought to myself, wow, you know, as a Christian, I probably couldn't become Christ. But as a Buddhist, I could become a Buddha, whatever that meant. And so I found another book, the phone book. <laughs> and I went to a meditation center, and I started to sit in meditation, and up until that point, I, I hadn't suffered as much as I did then. There I was, sitting cross-legged on this hard floor. It was cold that night, too. My mind was agitated. My back was uncomfortable. My knees hurt. 
my feet had started to become numb because the blood stopped. And I'm thinking to myself, why am I doing this? What possible good can come out of sitting on the floor quietly? And yet, my first teacher was an American. And, and he was able to speak to me in a language, English, that I felt really comfortable with. He had been a Japanese major at UCLA and went to Japan to study further and became ordained as a Shingon monk. And had come back to the United States and was living at this particular meditation center. And, and he would speak about the way he perceived the world. And I wanted to look at the world the way he did. He, talk, he talked about transparency and transcendency. And he talked about being able to have pain and not suffer. And as I sat on the floor suffering, I thought, wow, that would be so cool. <laughs> so I continued to meditate in spite of all the suffering, and I continued to listen to him. And two years later, I decided that early Buddhism really was the kind of Buddhism I wanted to follow. People talked about Zen, but to be honest with you, it was far too abstract for me. I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. The sound of one hand. What is that? You know, and, and, and they, would, they would sit quietly and not even study the suttas. And I wanted to study Buddhism. I wanted to know what the Buddha said. And so I found Theravada Buddhism, the doctrine of the elders. And I found a Sri Lankan elder living on Crenshaw Boulevard. And I went and knocked on the door of Dharma Vijaya, Buddhist Vihara, and said, I want to take a class. And he said, come back next week. And I did. And it was just me and him. And we studied the Vasudhimaga, the path of purification, an ancient text, 900 pages long. And I would read a page, and he would say, well, do you have any questions? And then I'd read another page. And the kind of questions I had were... Did you guys have toothbrushes back then? <laughs> and he said, oh, yes, we did. And the novice monks would make them out of roots for the elders. And I go, oh, that is so cool. But that's where I was sort of coming from. I, I was learning about Buddhism, but I was also learning about the culture Buddhism grew up in. And, and, and then I found out that the Buddha was a prince. He came from a well-to-do family, and life was pretty good for him. And I thought to myself, why would he give all that up? He had dancing girls playing musical instruments for him before he was the Buddha. He was married at 16. He was a prince. He came from the warrior caste. He got to throw spears and shoot bows and arrows and ride elephants. I'm thinking, that is so cool. Who could give that up? And, and yet he did. And one of the stories I heard when I first got to Buddhism was when he went into the streets of the city. And he saw four things that forever changed his life. He saw a really old person. He saw a really sick person. He saw a really dead person. And he saw a really holy person. And I'm thinking, well, how could he have avoided those things? Aren't they everywhere? Doesn't everybody see those things? And then I thought about my city. I thought about my culture. And I realized our culture does the same things the parents of the Buddha did for him. Prevents us from seeing the realities of life. 
that if somebody is on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles, has a car accident, is dead, lying on the freeway, the first thing we do is cover the body. We don't want to see the dead bodies. And then we take this dead body and put it into this ambulance with this really small window so you can't see through there. And then we take it to the mortuary and we buy some new clothes for the body, like it's going someplace and some shoes and paint the face and comb the hair and put some flowers around it so we can't smell the decaying flesh. And when we finally see Uncle Max, it looks like he's just sleeping. Death isn't so bad, is it? And then when somebody gets really old, we try to find some nice rest homes for them. We call them apartments. And, and then we don't have to deal with people who are really old. And when somebody's really sick, if they're lucky enough to have health care, they get to go to hospitals. We don't have to be bothered by them either. So our culture seems to do the same thing that the Buddhist parents did for him. That made sense to me. This whole story now was coming alive in my own life. And I was able to look on the streets of Los Angeles and see some old people, but not really old people. And see some sick people, but not really sick people. When he saw the holy person, his life changed. He wasn't escaping from the realities of his life, it goes on to say. What he saw, the holy life, the spiritual life, was the answer to the big questions of why do we die? Why do we get sick? Why do we get old? So it took him for some reason until the age of 29 to have his first child. And his first child was called Rahula. Now the word Rahula is Pali, the canonical language of early Buddhism, and it means fetter or impediment. Now I don't know many dads who would call their firstborn a fetter. But you know what? In the story of the Buddha, it really works well. Because what it sort of tells us, I suppose, is that there's a lot of attachment involved with having a family. And, and they will direct you. You will not direct them. And I think at some level, the Buddha realized that and left his family in the care of his parents. So here he was, this, this fellow who had had a, a pretty comfortable upbringing. He went to the edge of the forest. He took off all his clothes and cut off his hair and took his gold jewelry and tossed it away and picked up these old rags lying next to his feet and tied them together and covered his naked body. And for six years he did meditation and asceticism and renunciation. And why would anybody want to do that? I thought to myself, how difficult must that be to have one meal a day, not to lie down at night to sleep? How could anybody do that? I said to myself, well, this must be the legend of the Buddha. This, this couldn't have happened. Real people don't do that. And then I went to the sagely city of 10,000 Buddhas. And real people do that. If you become a monk or a nun at the city of 10,000 Buddhas, you're not allowed to lie down at night. You sleep sitting up in full lotus posture. You get one meal a day and it's vegetarian. And when I visited the monastery, one thing I realized about the monks and nuns there, they're really tired. They're not getting enough sleep. And why are they doing that? I said to myself, the answer that came was because they wanted to see where suffering came from. 
They were taking the things that made them comfortable and throwing them away. They wanted to see the root cause of suffering in the same way the Buddha wanted to see where suffering came from. And if the Buddha could figure out where suffering came from, he could end it. Now, I'm going to add something to this story because I think this is really important. That I imagine at some point the Buddha petitioned the gods of India to end human suffering. He was a theist. He believed in the gods of India. And yet, when he petitioned the gods of India, not one of them stepped forward. Not one of them could or would end suffering. And I said, whoa. And I was confused. And I went to a local Catholic priest. And I said to him, Father, can you have Catholicism without suffering? He said, no. I was surprised. The Buddha saw suffering and realized if he was going to end his suffering, he'd have to do it himself. The gods wouldn't help him. So his journey started. And at the end of those six years, he was 99% of the way to his liberation, to his perfection. He had almost done it, but he couldn't figure out that last 1%. And that's when he made the vow. I'm going to sit here underneath this Bodhi tree, this tree of enlightenment, until I achieve my final perfection or until I die. And according to the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, it took him seven days and seven nights. He didn't create the universe, but he did end his suffering. He became a fully perfected human being. And when I read that, I said, that is so cool. That means I have an opportunity to be perfect in this very lifetime. But what does that mean to be perfect as a human being? I said to myself, you know, does that mean you have the best shoes, nice car? Is that what a perfect human being is? And then I continued to read, and it turns out perfection is not having lust. Perfection is only having love. Perfection is not having greed. It's only having generosity. Perfection is not having hatred and anger. It's only having loving kindness and compassion. Perfection is not being in a state of delusion or ignorance, but only having wisdom. That every human being born has that potential, that potential we call Buddha nature, the potential to be perfect. So our job is not to acquire love. Our job is to get rid of the lust that prevents our love from seeing the light of day. The path of Buddhism, as it turns out, is a path of renunciation. But that is positive because that means we have all the love we'll ever need. We have all the generosity we'll ever need. We have all the compassion we'll ever need and all the wisdom we'll ever need. It's already there. It's our birthright. So there I was, sitting quietly on the floor, suffering, marveling at the story of the Buddha. A bit historical, a bit legendary, but, but filled with the kind of questions and answers that I was looking for. 
as a, a young lad of 30 who felt he would be dead soon. Then I came upon the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta. This was the first talk the Buddha gave, the turning of the wheel talk. And this is where he laid out his path. And he said, I have discovered four truths. And I would add, I have discovered four universal truths. And the first truth I have discovered, the Buddha said, is that life sucks. We're born, we get old, we get sick, we die. If that's not bad enough, everything we love, cherish, want to hold on to will be taken away from us. And the culprit is impermanence and change. And if that's not bad enough, everybody we don't like and every place we don't want to be in, we are around those people and in those places far too often. That's how it started. That was the analysis of the human condition. And then he went on to say, I have discovered the root cause. It is desire, it is craving, it is thirst. And then he went on to say, but I have discovered the answer. And the answer is nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering. Nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. Nirvana is the end of karma. And I have discovered the way leading to nirvana. And I call it the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. We can take those eight path factors and put them into three categories. Personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. A few weeks ago, I was at a Catholic high school in Santa Margarita, speaking to an an ethics class. And I like speaking to the high schools because they have the best questions and they're not afraid to ask questions. And so I said, you know, being a Buddhist, we start out with watching what we say and watching what we do. It's part of the Eightfold Path. The Buddha said there are four kinds of speech that always increase your suffering. False, malicious, harsh, and gossip or idle chatter. Those four kinds of speech always increase your suffering. The Buddha said there are three kinds of action that always increase your suffering. Killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. I had their attention on sexual misconduct. (laughs) But I started with killing, and I said to them, you know what the problem with killing is? It's really hard to be born. I said, if you're a Christian, most of them turned out to be, I said, this may be your first time here. Welcome. You finally made it. If you're a Hindu, I might say, welcome back. Good to see you again. (laughs) But how long was it before you were here? And how many years do you have until you got to leave? And what do you got to do for eternal salvation? You better get busy, I said to them, because you don't have much time. And one student said, well, how do you practice not killing? There's so much killing in the world. Everywhere I look, there's killing, killing, killing. TV shows, everybody's getting killed. And then they're figuring out how they were killed. I said, well, if you're a Buddhist, you start big. You get up in the morning and you say to yourself, today I'm not killing any human beings. And you walk out that door with confidence that you can make it through the whole day without taking anybody out. And when you get good at not killing human beings, then you go to lions and tigers and bears. And you say, I'm not killing any of those today either. And when you get really good at that, then the hard part comes. 
Because then today you wake up and say, I'm not killing any ants, mosquitoes, cockroaches, or flies today. How do you do that? Three o'clock in the morning, mosquito buzzing your ear. What's the easiest thing to do? Just wipe it out, kill it, go right back to sleep. But no, you've taken the first precept of Buddhism. You're studying the Eightfold Path. You're not going to take a life. You turn on the light. You get up. You try to catch that little guy and take him outside, knowing he'll be back soon. (laughs) But all the while you're trying to catch that mosquito, you're thinking and reflecting on what a special gift we've all been given, the gift of life. Not taking what is not given is an interesting concept because it's more than not stealing. If it wasn't given to you, you can't take it and can't even use it. So here you are at Perkins having a cheeseburger and you see the bottle of ketchup on the counter. But you're practicing not taking what is not given. So you get the attention of the waitress and say, do you mind if I use the ketchup? Well, she may think you a bit odd, because of course you can use the ketchup, that's why it's there. But it wasn't given to you. I was at a monastic conference at Shasta Abbey, as a matter of fact, and we had some forest monks who really practiced the Vinaya, the rules and regulations of of Buddhism, to the letter. And another monk, not knowing this, came up and, and marveled at the beauty of an apple the forest monk was about to eat and picked it up and said, my, my. You're lucky to have this apple, and he set it down again. That forest monk couldn't touch the apple until it was offered to him again. And finally, one of the lay followers noticed it and re-offered the apple so he could eat it. Now, the moral of that story is don't touch monk's food. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Sexual misconduct is really a challenge. And I was here last October... We had a wonderful gathering of of Buddhist monks and Catholic monks. We talked about celibacy for four days. It was so exciting. And I learned so much, you know. And, And I had to ask myself, well, why are Buddhist monks celibate? What did we do wrong? And... And... And and as I did my research, I found out that Buddhist monks are celibate for two primary reasons. The first reason is we live in an economy of generosity. We live on the donations of others. And if our lifestyle is too big, we can't be supported. So being single makes sense. But more importantly, the reason Buddhist monks are celibate is we want to be free. Now, when I say this to people, they say, well, but think of what you're missing. You're missing relationship, you're missing marriage, you're missing children, you're missing the joys of life. And I said, those are all wonderful and joyous and will bring you many hours of pleasure and happiness, but you will not be free. You will just be happy. And being happy is good enough for some. But for a Buddhist monastic, being free is more important. So that's why we're celibate. And yet, there are a lot of Buddhists who aren't monastic, and there are a lot of children out there. And so what did the Buddha say about that? And I was really surprised at what he said about sex. What he implied in everything he said about sex was this. 
There's no problem at all with sex. Sex is wonderful. The problem in Buddhism is that the desire for sex can never be satisfied. You can have sex like a thousand times and still not be satisfied. And it's the desire, the craving, and the thirst that causes the suffering. So we're not down on sex. We're down on the desire for sex. So it would be okay if you're a Buddhist to have sex with no desire. But then the question arises, would you want to have sex if you didn't have a desire? And I would say probably not. But say you still want to have sex. What did the Buddha say? Well, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, a famous Buddhist monk, in his, in his booklet, The Eightfold Path, he has found this. The Buddha said, do not have sex with people who are married. It causes a lot of suffering. Do not have sex with people who are engaged. It causes a lot of suffering. Do not have sex with children. It causes a lot of suffering. Do not have sex with people against their will. It causes a lot of suffering. And that's all he said. So as a Buddhist layperson, they start with those four ideas. And then they try to live their life by that. And I would think, with a little skill and luck, you could probably live your whole life and be very satisfied following those four guidelines. But, of course, it doesn't always work that way. And I was a prison volunteer for a year. State prison for men. I was invited by Deacon Szymanski, the Catholic chaplain. He said, Reverend Kuslak, I've got a lot of Buddhists up here. I don't know what to say to them. And I said to Deacon Szymanski, you got a lot of Buddhists up there? Everything I read about Buddhism didn't lead me to believe we went to prison. (laughs) But we're there, and some of them were there because of sexual misconduct. So my job was to remind them what the Buddha said. My job was to give them a meditation practice. They, they wanted me at one point to uh, change the diet. They said, you know, uh, we, it's terrible food here. They, they spend like a dollar on us a day for food, and it's bologna sandwiches. And we're Buddhist, and we're all vegetarian, and I want you to go to the warden, Reverend Kusla, and say, we want vegetarian food. Well, not all Buddhists are vegetarian. The Buddha wasn't a vegetarian. The Buddha was a beggar, and beggars can't be choosers. And you get what you, you eat, what you get, you know. And so I said, I'm not here to change your diet. I'm here to change your mind. And I went, oh, okay, okay. But there were other people advocating for diet change, so I didn't feel that was my job. They also wanted incense. They said, Reverend Kusla, it would be so cool to have incense. We could meditate so much better. Can you get us some incense? I said, no problem. I got them 10,000 sticks of incense. It was amazing how generous people are when you ask them. And within two weeks, it was all gone. And I said to them, you can't be meditating this much. What are you doing with the incense? They said, we're selling it. (laughs) So I became the supplier. (laughs) Right livelihood. I was giving a talk at USC. Some business majors were in the audience. They said, Reverend Kusla, as a Buddhist, is it okay to make a lot of money? I said, oh, yes, think how much more money you can give away. Of course it's okay to make a lot of money. The problem is, is when you own the money, 
and don't use the money. And most people that have a lot of money think they own it and don't use it sometimes. So as a Buddhist, we want to have right livelihood. We want to do something that benefits humankind, benefits community. We don't want to do something that creates more suffering. So maybe making atom bombs wouldn't be a good profession for a Buddhist. Maybe being a butcher wouldn't be a good profession for a Buddhist. Maybe being a bartender wouldn't be a good profession for a Buddhist. That may not be considered right livelihood. People may suffer more or animals may suffer more because of that. But can you support yourself in the style you're accustomed to and still be skillful and still have right livelihood? I think you can. It just may take more time and energy to figure it out. So you can see, when I came to Buddhism, I was attracted to the basic, pragmatic approach to life. Okay, watch what you say and watch what you do, Kusala. Now, my name, Kusala, was given to me when I took the five precepts of a Buddhist. The five precepts of a Buddhist are to avoid taking life, to avoid taking what is not given, to avoid sexual misconduct, to avoid lying, and to avoid consuming intoxicants. Those are the five precepts. And we're given a Buddhist name. And my name, Kusala, means skillful. Well, I was so proud. Everybody realized how skillful I was. That's why I got that name. And, and my teacher said, oh, no, Kusala, I'm sorry. You misunderstood. You are so unskillful. And every time somebody calls your name out, it's to remind you what direction you need to go in. I said, ah, that's how it works. Okay. So when Father William said, I'm going to introduce you to Kusla, here we go. It reminded me. Now we get into meditation. And we're going to talk about more of this tonight. But meditation is really the transformation of consciousness. Do we have the ability to transform our consciousness? According to Buddhism, we do. But it takes practice and hard work. We can change how we think. And the Buddha said, our thought leads our speech and action into the world. So rather than being a monitor of what we say and what we do, if we can transcend our unskillfulness through mental cultivation, we don't have to worry about it. Because everything we say and do will be skillful and reduce suffering in the world. Most cool. So how many lifetimes does it take to achieve that? Many, many. Some people come to Buddhist meditation because they are having a problem with their wife or husband. I'm thinking, that's probably the longest way around the problem because counseling would be so much more effective. You don't come to Buddhist meditation, I think, to work out relationship problems. You come to Buddhist meditation because you want to be happy, you want to be peaceful, and you want to be free. Free of who you think you are. And Buddhist meditation is designed to do that. Now, one of the, we're getting, I'm going to, we're going to take our break and questions and answers really soon, but one of the things I found with Buddhist meditation is that I didn't like insight meditation. Insight meditation agitated me. It allowed me to see how rotten the world was and every person in it. And I was so unhappy. And here I am meditating every day and becoming less and less happy and more and more agitated. I say, I can't do it anymore. I can't do this anymore. What's the other kind of meditation? The other kind of meditation is tranquility meditation. I said, oh, hey, that's for me. 
I want to be tranquil. I want to be blissful. I want to be happy. Even in this world filled with suffering, you can be happy. So my primary practice is one of tranquility with a little bit of insight. Some people choose a lot of insight and a little tranquility. And that's fine, too. So we have two basic approaches to Buddhist meditation. One, the Buddha was taught by the yogis of India. That is samatha meditation. That is tranquility meditation. The other, vipassana meditation, insight meditation, the Buddha rediscovered. And that led him to his nirvana, to his emancipation. And I use the word rediscovered because... This Buddha I'm speaking of, Siddhartha, according to some early Buddhist traditions, is the 28th Buddha. There were 27 before him. And we already know who the next Buddha is going to be. And that's Maitreya Buddha. So we're we're waiting for the 29th coming. (laughs) It may not happen soon. I'm going to stop there and continue in the next segment. But does anybody have any questions so far or comments? that they might like to ask? Yes. Uh, Suffering is a very difficult thing, uh, as you were saying. Of course, everybody experiences feelings of suffering. Uh, And yet, the the Buddha tried to to get away from suffering, tried to overcome suffering. Could you talk a little bit about, was it a transformation of consciousness that helped him transform suffering? Okay. Yes. I think, first of all, did everybody hear the question? It's about suffering. What is suffering? Can we, how do we transform it into not suffering? And I guess it's raining today, too. That is so cool. (laughs) Well, the first thing we need to do is define suffering. And the best definition I've ever heard came from a seventh grader in Glendale, California. Her name was Esmeralda. And I was speaking to her history class. They had just found out about Buddhism. And at the end of my presentation, little Esmeralda raises her hand and says, Reverend Kusala, I now understand the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. And I thought to myself, how did she know? Seventh grade. So as it turns out, suffering is optional, pain isn't. And when you read some of the suttas of the historical Buddha, in his later years, he would sometimes sit down because his back hurt. And that made me feel so good, because it still meant he was a human being. He had the pain, but he didn't have the suffering. When I think about that, nirvana seems to be a profound acceptance of the way things are. And so Buddhist meditation is designed to bring us to that present moment acceptance of how things are. I'll, I'll leave you with a, um, a thought before the break. I was talking to Father Gil Romero in Los Angeles. And, and he used to be the director of the interreligious part of the uh, archdiocese. And, and I'm a bit bold and unskillful, hence the name. And I said, Father Gil, I just figured something out. And he said, oh, what's that, Kusla? I said, well, you know, Buddhists don't have forgiveness, and you guys do. And he said, yes, that's true. 
So what's the problem with forgiveness? I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about it, Father Gill, and it doesn't seem when you forgive someone, you're on equal terms. That the forgiver is up here and the forgiven is down here. And, and yet, when you come to a place of acceptance, Father Gill, you're equal. It's all balanced. I think it's better than forgiveness. And Father Gill was so kind to me. Because he understood I was enthusiastic and didn't know a whole lot. And he said, but think, Kusla, think of this. If you have a relationship that's not working, doesn't acceptance and forgiveness, both those, don't they both heal the relationship, allow you to come back into balance? I said, oh yes, that's true, Father Gill. He says it's just another approach to coming into balance with the world. Forgiveness and acceptance. Let's take our break. Well, that's it. That was part one of my presentation at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. Part two is coming up real soon. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts, you can do that on iTunes or at dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. So until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.